are here this morning, and uh, not just for the number, but for you, amen. What do you do, <clears throat> or like to do, when you get bad news? This last year, 20, 2020, I had three occasions in which I received the call that one of our own had passed away, dear friends in our church. One of them, uh, we were starting our pastor's conference, something we work all year long to prepare for, and literally, I was right up here an hour before <clears throat> pastor's conference started, got a call that one of the men in our church had passed away unexpectedly. And I don't know about you, but uh, for me, I, I, you, get, you hear something like that, the last thing you want to do is do a pastor's conference right at that moment. You want to take some time. You want to process it. You want to get off on your own and pray and maybe shed some tears. There are times that we just need to be alone. And Jesus was no different. There were times that he too needed to get apart and to get alone. One day someone comes to him and tells him that John the Baptist had died. And not only the fact that John had died, but he was beheaded by Herod. What a terrible way uh, to end a ministry of a great man. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. But he was so much more than that. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one prophesied in the Old Testament. He was the one that baptized Jesus. In fact, he was the one that Jesus said this about him, Among them that are born of women hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. This would be terribly hard news for he and his disciples to hear. Uh, not, again, not only the news, but the mode and how it happened and the humiliation and the tragedy. Now, Jesus did exactly what many of us would have done. And as I just said, I would have liked to do. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, when Jesus heard of it, the Bible says he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. Of course he wanted to be apart. This is a tough time for him. Uh, it was time for some R&R. &R. It was time for some reflection and step away from the pressures just a little bit and just to process this news of his dear friend, his cousin, his forerunner who had passed away uh, in such a terrible matter. Now, did it work, this getting away? No, it didn't. Evidently, one of the disciples did a Facebook check-in, and uh, people found out where they were at. And the Bible says, And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. They could not get away from their ministry obligations. And here they are trying to get away. They're trying to just get a moment to grieve, and crowds of people are following him. I tell you this because... As we look at the story today, I want you to look at the story through that paradigm. They needed to get away. They needed some time. They needed to, to get some time off to just process the news of John the Baptist. I want to preach today on forward in his power. To have the power of God channeled through us is a wonderful thing. But we had better take note that sometimes it happens when we don't feel like it. Sometimes the power of God is made evident in our life when we don't feel like for it to show up. Uh, there's times that we have to wipe away the tears, put on a brave smile, and minister anyway. In my experience, Brother West, the power of God is not scheduled. You don't put it on your calendar. The times I've seen God work most through me in my personal life is when I am at the complete end of myself when I am wrung out 
and when I don't feel like serving anymore. And then it seems like that's when he does his work. And again, I say this because I want you to see the attitude, the outlook of the disciples on this day. They did not want to be here. They did not want to be dealing with people. We see that it becomes very evident in the text. And even Jesus himself had tried to get away from the crowds for some time apart. And this is what happens. Let's start reading verse number 1, John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. By the way, verse 2 makes it evident they are following Jesus for selfish purposes. All right? And uh, Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And verse 4, And the Passover feast of the Jews was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come unto him. He saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for every one of them may take a little, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Father, I pray you to help us today to see clearly your power available to us, and how we can receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a significant chapter in the Bible. It's a long chapter. In this chapter, Jesus' claims are revealed, verses 1 through 40. His claims are resented, verses 41 through uh, 71. His claims are revealed first uh, in his power, 1 through 21, and then in his preaching, verses 22 through 40. He reveals his power first publicly by feeding the multitude, uh, verses 1 through 15, then privately by walking on the waves, verses 16 through 21. So there's a lot going on in this chapter, and we can see much about the power of Jesus Christ, the power of God through him. Here you have a boy. He is chosen as the channel of God's power. He is poor, We know this because he has barley loaves. In those days, barley was the bread of the poor. It's been that way for centuries, in fact. Samuel Johnson said this kind of snootily. Uh, He said, barley is a grain from which in England is fed to horses and in Scotland is fed to people. Barley is the poor man's grain. And this is the message today, or this is the message of what the barley was today, is that it was the bread of the poor. We do not have this young man's name. We do know that he's a child from a poor family. He's probably a firstborn or an only child. Now you say, preacher, how in the world do you pull that out of Scripture? Out of 15,000 people, he had lunch. You know how you were with your first child or your only child. Uh, They got all the pictures. They got all the safety equipment. 
they got all the name brands, and if they went anywhere, they took lunch. Your third or fourth child has, has the, their school pictures, maybe a graduation picture, and hand-me-downs, and uh, you only get their name right after the third try. So I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing this was probably an oldest child or a, <clears throat> an only child. Any, he has a sack, sack lunch. It's, but looking at the crowd, this is nothing compared to the crowd. He just has a sack lunch for himself. From a human perspective, it is, or he is, absolutely insignificant. I want you to hold on to that thought today. Because maybe you're here, and you know how that feels. You know what it feels like to feel insignificant, to feel unimportant, yet in the hands of Jesus Christ, my friend, your insignificant can become momentous. In the hands of Jesus Christ, the insufficient becomes sufficient. Paul Sinaraj wrote this a few years ago, and I want to read it to you because I think it's so good. A basketball in my hands is worth about $19. A basketball in Michael Jordan's hands is worth about $33 million. It depends on whose hands it's in. A baseball in my hands is worth about $6. A baseball in Mark McGuire's hands is worth $19 million. It depends on whose hands it's in. A rod in my hands will keep away wild dogs. A rod in Moses' hands will part the mighty sea. It depends on whose hands it's in. A slingshot in my hands is a kid's toy. A slingshot in David's hands is a mighty weapon. It depends on whose hands it's in. Two fish and five loaves of bread in my hands is a few fish sandwiches. Two fish and five loaves in the, of bread in God's hands will feed thousands. It depends on whose hands they're in. Nails in my hand might produce a birdhouse. Nails in Jesus Christ's hands will produce salvation for the entire world. It depends on whose hands they're in. So put your concerns, your worries, your fears, your hopes, your dreams in God's hands because it depends on whose hands they're in. Isn't that good? The point is that the insufficient becomes sufficient in the hands of Jesus Christ. The little loaves <coughs> became a feast and it fed the equivalent of an entire city. Jesus Christ today, friend, gives us access to His mighty power. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Listen to this amazing verse. Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, that if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove, yonder, uh, remove hence to yonder place. Can you imagine saying that to a mountain? Can you imagine what would happen to the mountain? It would, you'd never heard a mountain laugh until you said that to a mountain. Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, the Bible says, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. How can Jesus talk like that? Well, he's saying here it's possible through me to have available to you power that will enable you to deal with obstacles far beyond your ability and to be, overcome difficulties far beyond your capacity. It's through his power not through ours. Now, Jesus is going to teach his disciples, Philip uh, and his disciples, about this. In verse 6, we're told he already knew what he was going to do. That's important for us to remember. He already knew what he was going to do. He did everything else then for a purpose because he already knew what he was going to do. He could have snapped his fingers and the food would be there and they would all be fed. Instead, he allows all of his disciples to feel the pressure. 
He allows them to scramble around trying to find a way to solve the problem. He ends up getting this young man and taking away his lunch. Now, this may be the unsung miracle of the day, to get a chubby kid to give up his lunch. Now, again, you might say, How do you, what do you mean chubby? The boy had five loaves and two fish. What do you get when you get lunch, a sack lunch? You get two pieces of bread, PB&J in the middle, maybe a bologna slice. He had five loaves and two small fish. I'm speculating, not preaching on that point, but uh, that's what I think. So, so Bubba gives up his lunch so Jesus could, could get him and the disciples involved in the miracle. What Jesus teaches us here is the sufficiency of his power. Secondly, I think he also teaches us how we can become channels of that power. Both are very important. Let's look first at the sufficiency of his power. Other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that Jesus ever did in the Gospels that's mentioned in all four Gospels. And it's an important miracle. It's an important story. I believe for several reasons. Uh, one, one uh, you, you see how many people were there, first of all. There was, the Bible says there was 5,000, but it only took census of the men. It said 5,000 men. And so with their families, if you had... Uh, a wife and 1.2 children or whatever you had, you could easily have 15,000 or over 15,000 people there that day. There were families, women and children there. <clears throat> at any rate, this miracle was seen at a, by an enormous crowd. And I believe one of the reasons that it was mentioned in all four Gospels is because of the validity of history, the external witness to the validity of this history. Whenever you're trying to study ancient history, you want to look at both internal and external evidence. The Gospels were being circulated around Palestine about 40 years after this miracle happened, the first ones anyway. And if there was a story in there about a miracle like this that took place in front of 15,000 people only 40 years later and that wasn't true, then this would have never survived, and yet it did because Jesus' miracles really did happen. Another reason I believe it demonstrates who Jesus really is. In the Old Testament, Jesus fed the children of, or God fed the children of Israel in the desert. He gave them bread in the wilderness. Remember what it was called? Manna. It was called manna. He feeds the multitude here in this text, and then he makes a great claim. Look at verse number 31, verse 32 of John chapter 6, because after Jesus feeds them, he claims that he is that bread from heaven. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Jesus is serving notice here. I'm the one. I'm the one that's come. Another interesting point here. This miracle shows us that Jesus always exceeds our expectations. He shows us the overabundant illustration of his power. In verse 31, he mentions manna. Uh, if you remember the setting in the Old Testament when God gave them manna, he said that when you go out to gather the manna, you can only get what you will use that day. You cannot get extra. You can't store any up. Uh, you were only supposed to get as much as you could consume that day. In fact, if you did try to get a little extra and store some up, it would immediately spoil and become uh, unedible. So there were no leftovers of manna. You only got enough. 
Yet Jesus here goes out of his way to show us that the bread from heaven that he brings is, is abundant. G- John 10.10, 10, your memory verse for the week, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. After everyone stuffed themselves on this miracle buffet, and that's what it was, a miracle buffet. Don't you love buffets? Amen. You can say amen to that. It's okay. That's a good thing. But Paul in the Bible tells us we ought to buffet the flesh. Several times he tells us that. I love buffets. And here's what they had here. Now they had 12 baskets left over. Now I wasn't, he's, when Jesus gives, he gives in abundance. He doesn't give you only your daily ration. His power is abundant. He will exceed your expectation, friend. You know, when you buy toys for your kids at Christmas or whatever, your kids or grandkids, sometimes on the package on the front, it'll say batteries not included. You ever bought anything like that before? By the way, if you want to be a really popular person at the time when Christmas presents are opened, the day before, buy a bunch of batteries because you'll be the popular one then. There's nothing more frustrating than a bunch of presents being opened up and nobody can do anything because there's no batteries. And that's what this, on that package, when it says that, It means that you get the toy, but you don't have the power to make it work. You can't do anything with it. And that's not the kind of gift that God gives. When God gives us the gift of life, eternal life in Him, He includes the power of the Holy Spirit, the power to make it work. Paul talks about this power in Ephesians 1.19, and what is that exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power. He is heaping up adjectives here. The exceeding greatness of His power to usward. In the Greek, uh, the words that are used here in, in uh, order are uh, hyperbolo, megathos, dunamis. You can almost hear it in English. That's hyperbolistic, megatonic, dynamite of God. We're talking about power. That's the power of God. A nuclear warhead is one hundredth the power of a hurricane. Yet the Bible tells us the Lord sits as king over all nature in Psalm 29. Uh, The hurricane is a small fraction of the power of an eruption on the surface of the sun. And that's just a star, one of billions of stars that God created. The Bible says in Psalm 147.4, He telleth the number of stars. He calleth them all by their names. The power of God, my friend, is beyond our imagination. That's the sufficiency. And then we can be channels of that power. We can be channels of God's awesome, amazing power. It's very clear that Jesus doesn't just want you to know He's powerful. He he wants more than that. That's not enough just for Him to know. He gets no joy just from showing us His power. That's how some people are. People like to sometimes drop names or drop hints about how powerful they are or what they can do, and they love to use the term, don't you know who I am? Jesus never did that. Never does that. In verse 6, the Bible says he already knew what he was going to do. But he asks Philip a question. And why does he do that? Because he's trying to get him involved. Jesus doesn't want you to know only about his power. He wants you to know his power. Experience his power. That's why he wants to get people involved. He doesn't just say, hey, Philip, hey, Andrew, hey, Chubbs, watch this and then do the miracle. No, he doesn't do that at all. Uh, He doesn't just have them stand aside. He asks Philip, what are you going to do, Philip? Philip says, I don't know. 
Andrew, what are we going to do? I don't know. Andrew is uh, befuddled at what to do. And then he adds, all we have is five loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? See, Jesus has them desperate here. In fact, more than that, Jesus has led them to the point of desperation. And then he says, which is such a blessing, I'm going to take what you have. It's absolutely puny compared to what we need, but I'm going to take the little that we have and add my power to it and minister to thousands of people with what you have. That's amazing. What a God. He burst the boundaries of anything you could have imagined. So how, because I like practicality, being practical, how do we practically become the channels of God's power? Well, there's a couple of steps, and i got to warn you, they're not easy. They're hard for us to do because human pride gets in the way. But I want to tell you today how we can be channels of God's power, and I really believe this is the only way it's going to happen. Number one, you cannot be a channel of His power until you see your own powerlessness. This is the basis of his working through us. The idea of getting Philip to admit, God, we don't have enough resources. We cannot feed this crowd. He had to get Philip to that point. He had to get Andrew to that point. See, they knew they had a problem. There are at least 15,000 people. They're out there in the desert getting hungry. They're, it's getting late. They've been there all day. They realize the problem, and Jesus let them think about the problem till they get to the point of despair. He leads them to see that their resources are hopeless in comparison to the need. You ever been there where you see a need in front of you, and your resource, you, you, you don't have what it takes to fill the need? You, don't, you know you don't. You're powerless to fulfill that need. And Jesus always does that because until you know your own powerlessness, you can't be a channel of his power. Now, lest you think that sounds cruel, it's anything but. Because if you believe you are competent to run your own life, make all your own decisions, you haven't gotten past that first step. If you have not seen your powerlessness, then you cannot realize his power. Paul had to come to that realization. The Apostle Paul uh, he, he, he uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, we'll talk about that a little later, his thorn in the flesh, but let me ask you this. For young men, what is their glory? What's the glory of young men? The book of Proverbs even talks about this. Their strength, their abilities. That's the glory of young men. The glory of older men is our brains, amen? We realize there is no such thing as a brain until we got a little older. But uh, young men, it's their strength. That's their glory. And yet, look at what Paul says. Therefore... I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. Takes pleasure in those things for Christ's sake. Then he goes on, for when I am weak, then am I strong. That makes no sense unless you understand. I have to recognize my own powerlessness before I can realize his power. When I am weak, then am I strong. Why would God insist on the prerequisite of us recognizing our powerlessness before he gives us his power. One reason, I believe, is because that the, uh, the, the human helplessness and hopelessness is a bedrock fact. We are deluding ourselves if we think that our human resources can supply our heart's desires. 
If you think that you can give yourself and you can, on your own, fulfill your heart's desires, you're deluding yourself. The truth about our human condition, none of us have anything to do with being born. Right? You didn't decide one day, I think in nine months, I'm going to be born. No, you had nothing to do with it. It's out of your choice. There is no control. You have no control whether you are male or female. That's right, Dr. Smellfungus. That's what I said. You don't know or you can't choose whether you're male or female. That's decided for you. Uh, after you're born, your automatic nervous system controls uh, every vital function of your body that sustains life. A power that no one really understands keeps the heart beating, keeps the lungs breathing, the blood circulating, the temperature of your body around 98.6 degrees. We grow old relentlessly and automatically. We're self-sufficient scarcely. We're not. Jesus put his finger on the matter in John 15:5 when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And listen to this statement he makes here. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Boy, we don't like that. I don't like that. Do you like that when you hear a statement like that? You can't do anything without me. That's what Jesus said. We hear that and we think, now, <clears throat> that's a bit extreme. I mean, we are, uh, after all, have made some progress. We have almost eliminated these diseases, smallpox, bubonic plague, tuberculosis, polio. Now we face the worst of all, COVID, which gives you only a 99.7% chance of survival. We've learned to control our environment to some extent. We've put men on the moon, and the Bible says here, without me, you can do nothing. And yet, things happen in our life all the time that demonstrate to us our lack of control, sickness, insolvency, loss of ability, uh, disease, loved ones dying. All kinds of things happen to us to remind us we really aren't in control. We're not self-sufficient. If you stop and consider this today, friend, I think you'll agree with me and along with what the Bible says, you'll start to, to see your own powerlessness. And hey, if you're feeling like that now, that's okay. Don't despair because God may be bringing you to the point that you can be the channel of His power. You must get to that point. Realize your own powerlessness. Jesus is like a surgeon. No surgeon just cuts people, makes a hole in them, and says, okay, my job's done. He's got a hole in him now. That's not what a surgeon does. First, there needs to be a careful cut or incision. Then there needs to be healing. Then you move on to the second step. The first step that you have to see is your own powerlessness, or there's no way you can be a channel of his power. The second step, this can be even more scary. You have to put everything you have in his hands. That's a scary thought, but that's what requires us to be a channel of his power. Verse 11, look at it, maybe the most scary verse. And Jesus took the loaves. That's it. Just look at that little phrase there. He took the loaves. Sometimes he has to take something. In fact, Every time he's going to do a work with that, he's going to have to take it. 
This young man was going to be a channel to Jesus' power, but Jesus had to take it away. Here's a kid in the middle of the desert, surrounded by 15,000 famished people. At least he had lunch. At least he, had, he was prepared. He's been lugging this around all day long, and now Jesus took it. The principle here is he's lost control over what he had, his lunch. It was gone. It's the only thing he had with him, and he lost it. He gave it up. He ended up eating more than he brought in the first place. Because he gave it up, he put it in God's hands. He was filled. He had an incredible feast. Not only did he eat all he wanted, everyone around him ate all they wanted too. He was filled. He gave up control. He put it in Jesus' hands. Think about that. Now you might say, preacher, it was only a packed lunch. Have you tried to take a lunch away from a hungry boy lately? That was a, that's a big deal that he gave up his lunch. Let me explain what it means to put your loaves in his hand. It means to obey, but to obey with the knowledge of his power. You see, when you obey, <coughs> you are showing that you believe God is the God of all power. You're treating him as a God of power. We're told in Romans that God came to Abraham. He said to Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a child. Now, that's not a big deal unless you look at the parameters of who he's talking to. Abraham's over 100 years old. Uh, Sarah's over 90 years old. And God has just told him, you're going to have a child. Now, look, realize along with me, that's a physical human impossibility. It must have set him back. He must have entertained some doubts. But then Abraham stopped and said, wait a minute, this is the God who spoke the world into existence. He has the power to do what he promised. Look along with me at Romans 4.20. This is what Abraham said. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. <coughs> and here it is. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. What made Abraham believe God? Knowing the power of God. What made Abraham obey God? Knowing the power of God. Knowing what he was capable of. Now, he had no problem obeying when he recognized who God was. This may seem harder than it sounds because a lot of times we kind of struggle with our daily decisions and we say, you know, it's all fine and good. I want to follow God's directing for my life, but I don't know, should I make this move? Should I change this job or take that job or should I... Uh, should I uh, do this? Should I marry this person? Uh, make these decisions? I'm just unaware. I don't know exactly what God wants from me in this area. And uh, th here's the key to obedience that I have found in my personal life that helps with those big decisions. Don't miss this. Obey in what you know. Obey in what you know. Young people struggle sometimes. What career or what life's mate or what college or what does God want me to do next obey in what you know and God will answer the questions of what you don't know can I tell you today friend you can't ignore the word of God and expect to live in obedience you can't go to church only sporadically and expect God's power on your life it's not going to happen you can't expect God's blessing on your life if you don't tithe that's an area right there where we, the, when, when it comes to the area of giving of ourselves, our time, talents, and treasures, and uh, the Lord requires us to give, and that's 
we obey when we recognize the power of God. If we don't recognize the power of God, we won't obey. See, what we'll say is we'll say, well, I just don't think God can provide for my needs, and so I'm not going to do so-and-so. Once you recognize the power of God, you'll obey. Obey in what you know. Unless you obey in what you know, you're not putting yourself in His hands. You're refusing to shift the center of gravity from yourself to Him. You're not going to see God transform your life unless you're willing to obey in what you know. Obey. Obedience. And then secondly, realize that God's power is for you. You know, God wants to show His power through each and every one of His children. It's not just for the preacher. It's not just for the deacons. Not just for the Sunday school teachers. It's for every one of God's children. He wants to live through you. By the way, he's not so much about what you can do for him as what he can do through you. That's how he wants to live his power. You remember in the New Testament when Paul was <clears throat> begging God to take away the thorn in his life? We don't know exactly what the thorn was, but it was something Paul wanted out of his life. Tradition says it was a problem with his eyes. and Whatever it was, Paul wanted it gone. And the Bible says that three times in his life he had three intense seasons in his life he was begging God to take away this thorn. Oh, Lord, I could do so much better without this thorn in my life. Why is the power of God not in my life for me to be able to take this away? God came to him and he said this, My strength is made perfect in weakness. That's not the way we think, is it? It's not how we think. That his strength would be made perfect in our weakness. So the weaker I am, the more powerless I am, the more I trust in Him, the more His strength is made evident in my life. What he meant here was if you're willing to humble yourself, if you can see that what I'm doing, this is what, in effect what he's saying to Paul, you're going to keep this thorn. I'm not going to take it away from you. But if you can just see that what I'm doing is for you, uh, if you will trust me, you'll see the power, the character, the patience, and the wisdom that will grow in your life if by, by keeping this thorn in your flesh. Sometimes we feel that because things are not going the way we want, we, won't, we, are, we don't have God's power in our life. He's going to make His power perfect in you if you trust Him, if not your way, a better way. It doesn't always work out the way we want. The key for us is to do our part, obey in what you know. Recognize your own powerlessness. Quit trusting in yourself. Our job as a Christian is not a management position. I see a lot of Christians, they come into the church and they want to serve God in an advisory capacity. Job wanted to do that for a little bit, didn't he? Yet God has no advisory capacity uh, jobs open. They're all just obedience. In, uh, it was a New Year's Day a few years ago, the Tournament of Roses Parade. There was one of the floats, a beautiful big float was going down there uh, the street and in, in line with all the others, and suddenly it sputtered and quit. It was out of gas. The whole parade was held up while somebody ran over with a, with a can of gas to the nearest place that had fuel, came back and put some gas into this, parade, uh, this float. The funny thing is that the float was for the standard oil company. 
with all of its vast resources, its truck was out of gas. Dear Christian, can I tell you today, you're connected to a source of power far beyond your own. Luke chapter 24, verse 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but uh, that you be endued with power from on high. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Don't sputter and run out of gas just because you won't tap in to the power that is available to you. It's not rocket science. We just broke it down today. Recognize your own powerlessness. Come to the point where you realize, God, on my own, I'm just not succeeding. I don't like what I'm facing in my life. I don't like the depression. I don't like the sin that I'm dealing with. I don't like this. And I don't have the power to do anything about it. Recognize your own powerlessness. And then yield all to Him. Obey in what you know to do. Do what He says. Do what you, do what you know is right. And He will answer the unanswered questions. And before you know it, you can be a channel for Him, for His power. Put what you have in His hands. Oh, listen, friend, God can do more with what you have than what you can do with what you have. Isn't that a blessing? It doesn't matter where you are in life, friend. Give him your loaf, give him your fish, and I promise you, you'll get back a feast. You always do because God, God, Jesus came to give abundantly. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen here.